and welcome back to Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast all about the importance of the clothes we wear. This episode, we are going to travel all the way back thousands of years to ancient Rome. Now, I felt like I couldn't do a series all about iconic fashions and iconic eras without talking about the fashions of ancient Rome, particularly because the toga is such a recognisable piece of fashion history. It has been used for costumes, for parties, for events, for so, so long and just the image of it instantly takes us back to this time period and is instantly recognisable as a Roman man or woman. And what's interesting about the toga particularly is the sort of unisex nature of it. But also when it comes to ancient Roman fashion, there is so much that we don't talk about and that is not really remembered. And I kind of want to go into that a little bit in this episode because it's really a bit of a missed opportunity, I think, in culture to not think about the fascinating and diverse fashion of ancient Rome apart from the toga. Now, if you're not really very familiar with ancient Roman history, I'll just give a little bit of detail into the general background of the culture, the time period, when it happened, what happened and things like that, just so you have a little basis to go off of when I'm talking more specifically about the fashion. So the civilization of the ancient Romans spanned more than a thousand years from the forming of the walled city in the mid 8th century BCE to the collapse of the western part of the empire in 476 CE. Now, up until around the third century, the Romans got a lot of their culture from the ancient Greeks, and this gradually developed into their own civilization. A lot of this influence was taken from Greek history. Think of the Greek tales, all those sorts of things, and eventually merged into this sort of Roman culture based off the heritage of the Greeks. And that is what we see today as ancient Rome. Roman Empire was absolutely huge, and it spanned spaces all around the world from Britain to Egypt to the Black Sea to Spain as well as Italy. The Roman influence was just huge throughout this time period and as I said the civilization of ancient Rome spanned but more than a thousand years and so it's no wonder that it's a time in history that we think of so vividly so clearly when we think of you know iconic eras and it's no wonder that the sort of visual elements of this time period have pervaded so much particularly when when it comes to the fashion. This is interesting, however, because Roman fashion is really quite simple. It's very diverse. It can be very fascinating, but at its core, it's made up of just a few very simple items to make the image of the Roman individual that we have. And I think that might be why it has become such an iconic, recognisable look, because it's not overly complicated. It's not made up of a huge number of different pieces that make up this grand, very specific look. It is very, very very simple and it's very easy to replicate. And I think for that reason, it has become easily costumed and very, very big in our cultural consciousness in terms of media and just in the general wider world. Now, as with all these episodes, the areas that we get a lot of the information and evidence about what people were wearing are from very, very specific sources. When it comes to ancient Rome, A lot of this is written sources, of course, because the Romans were very educated, philosophical people and used to write down a lot of their history and a lot of the day-to-day ways of living. But also a lot of the information comes from mosaics. Of course, the Romans made a huge number of mosaics that have preserved really, really well because of their physical makeup, but also statues. A lot of these have not survived particularly well. If you've ever been to Italy or Rome particularly, 
Gallery or any sort of museum, like the British Museum or the V&A or something like that, there's a lot of Roman statues that exist in sort of various um, <laughs> forms of togetherness. You know, some of them are have bits broken off and just look a little bit sad and need some TLC, but some of them have been preserved really, really well. I don't know if you have been to Florence, any of you um, listeners, but in the Medici Chapel in Florence, there is an incredible, incredible selection of statues. Now, not all of these are Roman because the Medicis were obviously um, around in the Renaissance period in the 15th century. However, they were, you know, collectors as a lot of people with money are in time. And they gathered a huge amount of historical pieces as well as sculptures. There's a lot of those that can be used as sources, but particularly a lot of the Roman statues statues give us an idea of what people would have been wearing, particularly in terms of the fabrics, the shapes, how it would fit on the body, things like that. Now, obviously, you have to take those with a pinch of salt, as always, because a lot of these were based on tales such as Hercules and people like that. And so these were folk tales, essentially. They were early versions of folk tale stories of gods, stories of goddesses and individuals and things like that. And so it's difficult to tell how truthful these were and how much they were based on truth and how much was fabricated for or the story-like image that they were trying to recreate. But nevertheless, these are still a really, really interesting source of information when it comes to the fashion of ancient Rome and the sort of things that individual would have been wearing. Now, with the general history of ancient Rome that I was talking about earlier, this also had a massive effect on the sort of clothes that people would have been wearing, especially in different social circles. Of course, the Romans inherited a lot of ideas from the Greeks, fashion being one of them. And as the empire grew and grew and expanded and incorporated different types of people and climates and religions and things like that, the general sense of style and costuming slowly became more complex and incorporated a really interesting combination of all these different places. Over time, the fashion became a little bit more rich, more varied, a lot more ornate, and it became fashionable to use rich, strong colours in your clothing, particularly for people of a higher social status and towards the tail end of the Roman Empire. Interestingly, in terms of social class, as we see all around the world in all different time periods, I spoke a little bit about this in my Tudor episode, certain fabrics, shapes, accessories, colours were reserved only for people of a higher social status and citizens who were seen as important and held titles. And so, as always, along with that, the sort of fashions that we see represented in various images are the people of a higher social status with more money and more access to this varied wardrobe that the sort of middle, lower class, day-to-day people would less likely have had access to and would also not have been represented visually or on paper quite as much as people of a higher social standing. For example, as the Roman Empire expanded um, across the world, so did their trade, naturally. And this made more varied and interesting fabrics more available. Of course, the Roman Empire didn't completely have their finger on the pulse and weren't um, able to trade every single you know, item of clothing or type of fabric that they wanted. Places like China, for example, um, retained 
quite tight control of their trade systems, exporting only certain types of silk and thread and fabric and made these very, very expensive to make them hard to get, which is why we also see the higher class people with more money in ancient Rome having access to these things because, of course, they cost more and they were harder to get. But of course, like all these older time periods, the kind of clothing trade was not as fast paced as we're used to nowadays. You know, fashion trends didn't exist quite in the same way. And the type of clothing that you saw in the Roman Empire from the beginning to the very end was different. Yes, was more varied and more diverse, but it developed very, very slowly over over a thousand years. And it's just, you really have to understand that when you're thinking about the clothing of these ancient time periods. Because, you know, nowadays we have this idea of fashion where it's so fast paced, it's ever changing. You know, you've got trends and seasons and all these sorts of things. And that just did not exist in the same way. However, the ancient Romans were a society quite obsessed with um, your social standing and the type of person you were. And so your clothing, your accessories, your jewellery, the expensive quality of these and exactly what you were wearing played a really, really big part in society. And so naturally it did change a little bit to keep up with the pace of new generations of people and things like that. But on the whole, it was not as fast paced as we're used to, which is why the image of the Roman individual is so pervasive because it was an image that was represented in Roman culture for over a thousand years. And so it had a very long time to make its mark. (laughs) Although while very expensive fabrics and things like precious jewels were popular as a way to show your wealth and your power, being extremely ostentatious in this time period was also seen as a little in poor taste. It was generally frowned upon as like we see in places like the Titanic and in America, it screamed of new money. And that was often seen as not as idealised as someone who had grown with money over time and had these less gaudy, smaller elements of expensive jewellery that would have shown that you came from a long line of people with money and wealth. This was particularly pertinent for men because this idea of being too effeminate was also not particularly liked, which we see so much in time. And I really find it so fascinating that that is something that has always been so frowned upon. And for what reason, I can't really think. It's just always been so pervasive, this idea of being too feminine as a man as being something frowned upon. And it's just really fascinating. Perhaps I could do an episode on that in the future and where that maybe came from, because it crops up all the time. And Yeah, I can't think for why. But anyway, this idea of ostentatiousness and gaudiness was, yeah, frowned upon for men in Roman society in particular. And it was seen as quite insulting, I think, to dress in this way. And people did not like it. So basically, you could show off your wealth to a point, but if you went too far, it was not good. This is something we see a great deal in the West, particularly in terms of um, ostentatious fashion. But it's interesting that it's something that has some roots in the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans were also very, very famous for having an extensive and diverse list of emperors, some of which have pervaded more in history than others. Caligula, I'm looking at you. (laughs) But they also were a big part in this idea of nobility and fashion. For example, an emperor called Elagabalus, probably said that wrong, who ruled from 218 to 222 CE, was the first Roman emperor to ever wear silk. 
he sort of popularized this idea of wearing silk. And like I said, silk came from East Asia, from China, and it was extremely hard to get and extremely expensive. So this was a simple and effective way for him to establish his money and his power. And he made this sort of idealized for a lot of the emperors that came after him. Now, I spoke a little bit about the toga at the beginning of this episode, and I would say that that is the individual piece that the Roman Empire, the Roman age is most famous for. Toga parties exist, you know, like that is the piece of clothing or the way of wearing clothing that instantly puts you back to this time period. And if you're wearing a costume as a Roman, for example, you will go for a toga because it completely sums up this time period in one individual item of clothing. A toga is generally a very large piece of material that is twisted and wrapped around the body to be worn as a sort of cloak. It served a similar function as the Greek himation, although the fabric was of quite a different shape and material. But here you can see the Roman fashion being inspired by that of the Greeks. Now, the toga was a very complex item of clothing when it came down to it. It needed a very complex method of draping. And as a note of rank, its wearing was actually restricted to Roman citizens only. I think we see it as a very simple item of clothing. But actually, when you look at how to wear a toga properly, as they would have done at this time period, there are videos on YouTube and around the internet and things like that. It's really very complicated. And there's certain specific, unique ways that you have to wear it, twist it to wear it properly. And so it was something that was particularly worn by higher ranking individuals. The toga was cut in the shape of a circle measuring about 18 feet along the cord of the segment and about 5.5 feet at its widest point. It was made of wool usually and so would have been very heavy and also quite expensive and difficult to make. We think of wool as quite a, uh, I don't know, maybe a cheaper type of fabric today. Actually, it would have been very, very hard to make, distribute and turn wool into items of clothing. And so again, the toga was something restricted to people who had the access to this. Now, according to the internet, <laughs> to drape it, about five feet of the straight edge of the fabric was placed against the centre front of the body from ground level upward. The rest of the material was then thrown over the left shoulder and passed around the back under the right arm and once again over the left shoulder and arm. The right arm was therefore left free. The material could be pouched in front as well as drawn up over the head and certain patterns and colours were worn by specific members of society alongside this very complex way of draping it across your body. So in fact the toga was in its most complex form restricted to those of a higher rank. And the basic garment was something called a tunica. And in fact, the colours differentiated for social classes. The white was reserved for the upper classes and natural or brown fabrics for others. They also differed in length, with longer ones being worn for important occasions and shorter ones being more day-to-day -day wear. Now, the toga and the tunica were reserved for men. They were seen as a masculine garment. But for women, they very much wore something very similar to what the Greeks would have been wearing, called a stola. 
Slowly as time passed in the empire, women took to wearing several garments layered on top of the other, while the garments themselves were made of the finer fabrics and were more lavishly decorated. Women also wore this very feminine cloak called the pala, and this also resembled a piece of Greek clothing. So while men in general would have worn one huge piece of fabric draped very complex ways all over their body to wake the toga, and the tunica, which was similar but a little less complicated, women would have worn smaller sheer pieces of fabric layered on top of each other to get the desired look. And so with this in mind, it's clear, like I was saying earlier, that Roman clothes weren't purely for function, especially if you were of a higher class. They were quite symbolic of your hierarchy, your wealth, your power, as well as your age, your gender, and the job you had as well. And so it wasn't just a simple, you know, piece of fabric wrapped over the body, bish bash wash done, like we maybe think it is. It was actually an extremely complex way of wearing clothing. It just doesn't seem that way quite so much from the outside. But when you go into detail about how clothes were worn, what clothes were worn and by whom, it's actually a really fascinating little piece of history in terms of how clothing completely represented who people were, what they did and where they should stand in society. And this idea of representing who you were in society was huge to the Romans. And they were very, very big on showing this to other Romans, to other people in Italy, as well as just all around the world in general. Society was huge and your place in it was very, very important to this culture of people. And so it makes complete sense that clothes were the way to do that. When you were traveling, when you were just going about your day-to-day life, when you were doing business, your clothes would have been the way to show this to people, much like they are now and have been all throughout history. But again, like I said, we have this image of the Roman toga being the only piece of clothing that anyone wore, it being just a big simple piece of fabric and that's it. There's so much to it and at the time period people would have been much more aware of this than we are now. I mean, I hope they would have been because we're not living in the Roman era. (laughs) But, you know, it, it was so much more complex and there was so much more minutia to it. There are a lot of different quotes from people of importance, emperors and things like that at this time period that also give you an indication into the importance of fashion. For example, a quote from Seneca the Younger says, You are familiar with the carefully coiffed young man with their gleaming beards and hair, everything from a box. You can never hope for anything strong or solid from them. Now this harks back to what I was saying earlier about the sort of gaudy, ostentatious man being seen as effeminate and unimportant. That's also really interesting in terms of this idea of social standing because strength was an important thing for the Romans. They went to a lot of wars. The Roman army was famously absolutely massive. And so being strong and important and solid and masculine was also really important to the Romans. And your clothes would have been a way to indicate that to people and solidify your standing as a masculine man. talk about the minutiae of fashion here, it's also really interesting to think about the specific types of fabric that were used. Like I said, in general, togas were made of wool, but a lot of different fabrics were actually found throughout ancient Rome. The top three, of course, being wool, linen and silk, but leather was also used for shoes and sandals, with the exception of military uniforms. But there were all these specific types of silk that would have been produced for the Romans, as well as wool. Some wool would have been produced in Italy, some types of linen came from the eastern parts of the empire and Greece also made flax silk which is really interesting from the island of Koz and like I said earlier some types of silk were also imported from China as well as Syria. 
Now, thinking of fabrics, it's also really interesting to think about the way that these fabrics were dyed and the sort of colours that Roman people would have been wearing. The art of dyeing was actually a very popular practice during the Roman era, but the most famous dye of the classical world was Tyrian purple, so-called because its centre of production was in the twin cities of Tyre and Sidon, which are now in Lebanon. Now, this dye is really fascinating because it was taken from the glands of the mollusk, a mollusk purpura as it was known, and was so expensive owing to the small size of the source material and how much you would have had to have gathered to dye a full piece of cloth, particularly a toga, considering how huge they were, as I mentioned a minute ago. Therefore, the wearing of Tyrian purple was only for the select few who could afford it and have access to it. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what colour this would have been because a lot of the individual items, you know, don't exist. It was a very long time ago, but I think it would have been something between red and purple. So some sort of mauvey type colour. Wearing this colour became so popular for high-end people that production sites were established in Crete, Sicily and Antolia. There's a hill in southern Italy that survives that is composed entirely of the shells of the Purpura mollusk. And I bet that's an amazing visit. Maybe one day I'll go. <laughs> Interestingly, if you think about the mollusk Purpura, there's a word that's very similar here to our word for purple. And this is in fact where the word purple to describe that colour was derived from. However, as I said, according to Roman sumptuary laws, this stated that only the emperor could wear a toga of solid purple made from this Tyrian purple. Now, I found a lot of this information um, just sort of from all over the internet, <laughs> just scattered around. But um, a lot of it I found from an article via the Vegan Review. Now, also thinking of fabrics, a lot of these fabrics were produced using a loom. But in ancient Rome, women were the ones who weaved cloth and created these fabrics. It was considered part of the role of Roman women to participate in making clothes for their households and would often have made their own clothes. Sometimes even highly aristocratic wealthy women were expected to do this work as well because it was seen as part of the role of being a woman in the ancient Roman civilization. However, the process of making clothes was not just to the women in their homes, as often once the cloth had actually been woven by women, it was then taken to someone called the fuller. And this was traditionally a man's role. And he would clean and shrink the wool to make it suitable for actually turning into clothes after the women had weaved it. There were many of these workshops discovered in Pompeii, and they give us a lot of details about the process of making clothes, which is really fascinating. As we see around the world, it was cleaned by being stood on from a mixture of water and wee, which is just really so gross, but that happens a lot in the making of clothes in ancient civilizations. But then it would also have been trimmed down and dried and pressed into these huge presses, which would have washed all the gross stuff out. <laughs> Most pieces of cloth would have kept its sort of natural woolen colour. However, some would have been bleached, which was a more expensive process. And as I said, white togas were reserved for the richer members of society. And some would have then been dyed in colours, purple for the emperor, for example. Now, this purple dye is interesting because, like I said, togas and pieces of clothing in the Roman Empire that were fully purple, as in completely dyed all the way, were only allowed to be worn by emperors. But some togas were bleached and then included aspects of the purple to show your social standing. 
For example, an undyed toga with a narrow purple stripe at the border was worn by equestrians and sons of the elite, and togas with a wide purple stripe were reserved for senators and other holders of high office. Victorious commanders returning from war were allowed to wear togas of purple wool and gold thread, much like the emperor, but only in these specific circumstances. The Romans did not really wear trousers, except when it came to their military uniforms. In fact, in ancient Greece, trousers were always associated with um, the enemies such as Persians, who often wore striped trousers and the high heels, maybe, that I spoke about in my heels episode. Listen to that if you haven't already. (laughs) But the Romans would have then also viewed trousers as the clothes worn by military enemies because they took so much of their culture from the Greeks at this time period. A lot of other cultures in war also favoured wearing trousers over tunics and draped pieces of cloth like the toga. And so trousers were really associated with the enemy, with barbarians and things like that, and both in Greece and Rome. And so that's likely why for a lot of their fashions, trousers and covered legs did not really play a part. Also speaking of military pursuits, I think another piece of accessory, I suppose, that we associate with Roman clothing is the laurel wreath that is worn around the head. Now, this would have been worn by Romans but only in certain social circles and for specific opportunities. Sometimes it would signify a victory in a battle, but it wasn't traditionally worn for this reason. Usually it would have worn to signify victory in sports or in music and in poetry and things like that. So it was specifically worn for these sorts of reasons to indicate some sort of victory. And I think that's really interesting little piece of history there because we have this image of Roman people walking around in a toga and a laurel wreath headdress every day. But actually, these individual items would have been reserved for specific times in the year, for specific reasons and for specific people. But again, this is likely why it's pervaded as the image because these are the sort of people and the sorts of times in the year that would have been documented, would have been used to sources, would have been written down would have been immortalized in marble and things like that. And so that is why this is the image we have, because the general day-to-day worker, the person, you know, staining dyes, uh, I doubt people would have made a painting of him or a portrait of him or made that guy out of, you know, a marble statue or in a mosaic, unfortunately. And so that image is not the one that pervades, even though it was likely the one that was seen the most around the Roman Empire by normal people. Much like today and all throughout history, the time periods that we choose to document are when you've won at something. You know, when there's a victory, when you've done a show or Christmas and things like that, images and documentation is generally, because of how difficult it was in the past, and even still now, reserved for specific times of the year and after specific events. And it's been the same forever. You know, we're not taking and framing a picture of us on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock in our pyjamas you know, when we haven't washed our hair or whatever, we're taking these pictures on our wedding or if we've won an award or like a specific event. And if these were the only images to pervade throughout history, people would assume that all day, every day, people were wearing big white wedding dresses when in fact, actually, that's really not the truth. And these pieces of clothing were reserved for maybe once in your life or once a year. I think it's just a really interesting thing to think about because it really explains to us why that specific image of the Roman man in the toga with the laurel wreath headdress has stuck so much in our consciousness because that is what we see and it is very, very easy to assume that is how people looked. 
Now, thinking of accessories in terms of the laurel wreath headdress, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of beauty fads of the time periods in terms of hair, accessories, makeup and things like that, rather than just the clothes. Because as I always say in this podcast, these individual things, hair, makeup, um, jewellery, they give you as much an indication into fashion trends and social status just as much as clothing does. And often they do get a little bit forgotten. However, sometimes these are the most important pieces of a general look or a general type of fashion to give us an indication into when, who, what, where, all these types of things. And it's just as important to talk about as the clothes. We'll start with headwear. Romans did not tend to really wear hats or big headdresses other than the laurel wreath at specific times of the year and for specific reasons. However, this does not mean that Roman customs and traditions of hair and hairstyling were not important. In fact, the way you styled your hair was probably more important than the hat and was used in a similar way as we see in other time periods like the top hat, for example. Hair would have been your way to decorate your head and show your social standing. Men's hairstyles in ancient Rome were quite simple, with women's hairstyles being a little more elaborate. The razor was only um, introduced in Rome in about 300 BCE and so men would have worn their hair and their beards a little bit longer because it would have been harder to cut these. However, once the razor was introduced, shorter hair that was combed forward became a very popular common hairstyle for men. And this hairstyle has become known as the Caesar. Of course, it was named after the Roman general Julius Caesar and became a real staple for the Roman man. Beards generally went in and out of style, depending on whether they were favoured by the emperor of the time period, which is really interesting because we see that throughout history, particularly in the West, from the kings and the royals and things like that, they really dictate a lot of the fashion trends that exist at the time period. In fact, the Romans also had some really fascinating like traditions when it came to their hair and the way they styled their hair. For example, in ancient Rome, if you washed your hair too often, it meant you would have upset and disturbed the spirits that were watching over you. But they also believed that it was very, very important to wash your hair on the 13th of August to celebrate the birthday of Diana, the goddess of the hunt, which is also really interesting and very, very specific. Sailors also believed that it was bad luck to cut their hair aboard the ship, except for during a storm. There you go. Of this information I found in an article from encyclopedia.com on Roman headdresses. Now, the women of ancient Rome also use their hairstyles in specific ways to dictate who they were but they also would have used makeup and a lot more jewellery to do the same thing to add variation to their clothes and as a way of expressing themselves. Again, according to encyclopedia.com, according to the statues, coins and paintings of the time period that provide our evidence about the hairstyles worn by women, women change their hairstyles very often. And though there is no one typical Roman hairstyle, it is clear that Roman women often curled and braided their hair as a popular style. However, also according to the UNC College of Arts and Sciences, Roman women often would have also worn a symmetrical hairstyle, usually with the centre part. And this would not always have been braided. Roman sculptures were afraid of more fragile renditions of hair, thinking they would chip or break. And so sculptures often made braids and curls that were thicker than the real ones. This has given our image of the thick braided hair of the Roman woman. Also, according to thecollector.com, elaborate hairstyles were very popular in the late 1st and early 2nd centuries. Hair could be arranged around a wire framework, create height for eye-catching styles. And hair pieces with plaits and curls often made made from the hair of captured slaves, unfortunately, was also clipped into a woman's existing hair. 
and by the mid-2nd century AD, styles became more simplified. Waves crimped into the hair also became popular at this time, as seen in many, many portraits from busts of the time period. There is a marble portrait bust of Julia Domna, wife of Emperor Semptius Severus from the late 2nd century CE, which shows you this very, very clearly, and this is held at the Museo Nacional Romano. Also, interestingly, thinking of hair, body hair is a really interesting one to talk about when it comes to the Roman women. Early Romans thought that a lack of body hair symbolised high class and money and power. And so many paintings and sculptures of ancient Roman women reveal that even their pubic hair and all their body hair was completely removed. Hair removal was done via razors, tweezers, creams, as well as sharp stones. And this is really fascinating to think about because I think we think of removing body hair such a modern sentimentality, something we do nowadays, and people in the past would not have bothered with that. But actually, there is so much evidence to suggest otherwise. Now, with this in mind, the idea of cosmetics is also really, really interesting. Again, something we also think about as a very modern idea. Actually, the wearing of makeup and cosmetics has a big history for the Roman era for women. For example, rouge, eyeshadow, facial powders, eyeliner and a sort of early form of foundation were applied a lot by very upper class women and were very, very popular. This is also something we see very popular in the ancient Egyptian civilizations. And I think there is a little bit of a crossover here because they existed around the same time and had a lot of sort of mergings between one another. My next episode, in fact, is going to be on the fashion of ancient Egypt. So listen to that if you're interested. But I think it's really fascinating that the higher class lavish women would have been the ones wearing makeup and this would have signified your social standing. I think blusher was particularly popular during this time period and that would have been reserved for very high class women and would have been extremely popular with them. Unlike what we see in the West in other time periods, makeup being seen as a negative, you know, taking you away from God, associated with sex workers and things like that. For the Roman era, it was in fact the very opposite and not very dissimilar to how we associate makeup with today. Often high class women have expensive makeup and the way you style makeup and the makeup artists that you hire shows your social standing and really offers you a place in certain societies. Now, not only did Roman women have a real interest in makeup, there's also a lot of evidence to suggest that they were fascinated by skincare and used a lot of beauty tools similar to what we use today. For example, they used tweezers, toothpicks and nail cleaners and razors and things like this. Now, a lot of this information also comes from archaeological finds where they literally have found tweezers and razors and combs and things like that buried, which is also really fascinating. But there's also a lot of perfume bottles that were found that exist, for example, that would have held perfumes and body oils. And this gives us an indication into the fact that this is something women would have been interested in. Another source that gives us information into the history of skincare and cosmetic use in the Roman Empire for women particularly is somewhere you'd not expect. <laughs> but um, the love poet Ovid wrote Cosmetics for Women. And this was a parody of his poetry, which sought to provide details of how women made themselves beautiful and how they could make themselves beautiful for the men in their lives. For example, he said, spots on the face are banished by a remedy taken from the querulous nest of birds. Kingfisher cream, they call it. This comes from Medicamina Feshae Feminae from line 75. 
probably said that extremely wrong, but it's really fascinating little piece of history in terms of sources to see where this comes from. And obviously it's a parody, but I'm sure there's some truth in there as well, because people would have found it funny if he was taking the mick out of these women that were very interested in their beauty and their makeup, much like today. And so he would have used things that were popular at the time period just to make this funnier, I suppose, and more true to life. Now, we'll end on another little piece of fashion, and that is underwear. Not much is known, obviously, about Roman underwear, much like a great deal of underwear from history because it was worn a lot, it did not survive well, it often got binned or burned or turned into other things, and so physically it doesn't exist. And the only examples we have are written evidence or, you know, paintings or sculptures and things like that. But likely, pieced together from a variety of different sources, underwear was like a lightweight tunic and would have been made of soft wool or linen. And women also, instead of bras, would have bound their breasts tightly with cloth bands and men would have worn something like a loincloth underneath their togas. There you go. So I'm going to end it here. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope you are a little bit more aware about the minutia of fashion of the Roman era. People did wear togas and laurel wreath headdresses, but not in perhaps the way that we would have thought. I hope you found that little tidbit about the history of the colour purple interesting, because I certainly did. And I hope you go back and Google some images of Roman fashion, particularly Roman busts. Look on the V&A and places like that. There's a lot of different museums around the world that have amazing collections of these pieces. So much more than I was able to talk about this in, in this episode, which is why I didn't really go into any specific details about sculptures because there was just too many. <laughs> and it's sort of something you need to see for yourself without me explaining it. But do go away and have a look on the websites of these museums. The Corinthian Museum is one and there's a lot of museums in Rome and in Italy that have images online of these pieces. So do go ahead and look at that. I will be sharing some of them on my Instagram over on Silhouettes Podcast. And that is something you can look at whilst you're listening to this episode. If you want more of a visual source put in front of you and you don't want to do any of the research yourself, totally understand that. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed our little trip back in time to ancient Rome. The next episode will all be about the fashion of ancient Egypt and that will see an end to this season of iconic eras. I will not be back until the new year because I'm going to take some time off for Christmas, going to take some time off in the new year. Subscribe to my channel and you'll be notified when anything else new gets added. And speaking of, please do rate and review this over on Spotify and Apple Podcasts because it really, really helps to know what you guys are enjoying and the sorts of things you want to listen to and which episodes you enjoyed the most. I want to create content that I enjoy researching, but I also want to create content that you enjoy listening to because that is the most important part. So I do want to hear from you. I do want to read your reviews and I want you to interact with me with that just so I can make the best content possible. But I'll leave you there. I hope you had good fun. I'll see you in a week's time and stay fab everyone.